the third time, I, we, I don't know exactly how the guy flew off to the right quite a bit, and went way up ahead where we lost him, and he come back and hit his head on him. That was B-17 pilot Harold Dunn, who was shot down over Germany and interned as a POW in Stalag Luft III. He also participated in his own way in The Great Escape. Stick around, we have got a great series for you and a few surprises. Relax and enjoy this next series on the Warrior Next Door podcast. In this series for the first time, we recorded using an online service to be able to include a remote guest. As a result, you may hear some varying internet voice quality and minor background static issues. We hope you won't find them distracting and will instead enjoy the content. Thank you very much. This is the Warrior Next Door podcast, where we feature oral histories from veterans whose stories provide an intimate look at world history and how it still affects us today. All the veterans featured in this podcast were interviewed by us while serving as volunteers for the Folk Life Center at the Library of Congress. Our interviews, almost 200 in total, were conducted with veterans who lived in our cities, our neighborhoods, and often, you guessed it, right next door to us. Welcome to our journey. Woo, Ryan, did you hear that? What you just heard was a B-17 pilot, Harold Dunn, who we're going to be featuring in this episode of The Warrior Next Door getting shot down by one of the most dangerous German fighters in World War II, the Fock Wolf 190. Yeah, and it was rather early in the war at that. Yeah, absolutely. I think this would have been, what, around 1943? Yeah, that's correct. So in 1943, we did not have control over the skies over Nazi Europe. They were very much contested at this point. We did not have the uh, no fighter the escorts. P-51 Mustangs. Yeah, no fighter escorts, none of that. So... So we got something kind of a little bit special that we're going to do today, um, and we're going to announce that a little bit later. We're really looking forward to it. We have a lot of these new things that we try to do on Warrior Next Door, and some of them suck and some of them work, but I'm anticipating this not sucking. So before we get into that, though, Ryan, um, um, you interviewed Harold Dunn. Could you explain how you met him? Yeah. um, Actually, Tony, it was actually through you that I met Mr. Dunn. Uh, This was an interview that I believe you had scheduled with our friend Eric Sims, who has hooked us up with several veterans in the Tulsa area. And you couldn't make it that day. You had you were doing a follow-up with the gentleman from Blackwell, Oklahoma, I believe. And uh, so you handed it off to me, and I was super excited because uh, this is a B-17 pilot shot down over Germany. Um, he flew with the 367th Bomb Squadron of the 306th Bomb Group of the Mighty 8th Air Force stationed in Thurley, England. Uh, he arrived rather early in the war and was uh, actually flew um, with no escorts. Hmm. And that was a time in the war for anyone who knows uh, when when we were taking heavy losses because of no fighter escorts with us. So not only was he facing these very deadly German bombers, he was doing it alone. Basically, all they had was their own weapons to fend off these. Uh, and, and from what I heard early in the war, we're talking 1943, from books I've read and whatnot, we're going to learn more directly from Harold shortly, is earlier in the war, the fighters were the things that really scared the bejesus out mm-hmm. of these these bomber crews. Yeah, we were thinking that the fortress itself would be able to defend itself. You know, it was a you know the plane, the B seventeen, was bristling with with guns, and um, you know clustering together, flying to closer together would be a, a big prickly you know uh, 
defense against the, the, the Germans. Um, but they were able to, as you'll find out, get around some of that and necessitated um, the fighter escorts, which evolved naturally at that point, to come along and, and change the course of the air war for sure at that point. All right, so as Tony alluded to earlier, we have a very special surprise today. We've got our first ever guest co-host on the show, and um, I'd like to just go ahead and introduce Miss Marilyn Walton. <laughs> yeah, right. Rhino, we got someone on the Warrior Next Door who actually knows what they're talking about for once. We this don't have to really, fake it really anymore. Exciting. This is awesome. Well, at least not for this series. Yeah, we got someone to tell us what time it is. <laughs> well, so we're very happy to have Marilyn here today. Um, My pleasure. Marilyn, I'd just like to get into your background and uh, your uh, your pedigree. Could you explain to our listeners what your uh, background research has been in and how this really dovetails into our story that we're featuring today? <laughs> I've probably been doing World War II research uh, for almost 20 years now. Um, and it all started for me when I um, decided to trace my father's footsteps, World War II footsteps. He was elderly then, and he never knew much of what I did because he had passed away. But I was able to go back to Germany and find his plane and interview the people, that, and we can get into that later. Uh, but I've always interested, been interested in history, particularly World War II history and Stalag III history. So that's kind of my area of expertise. Um, and I'm blessed with a lot of people who, who have the same interest, both here and in Europe and different places. And We've traded information for years, so I just find it very interesting, and I like to write about it. <laughs> so before we get in the resume, I'm just curious. So about 20 years ago, when you started on this journey, what prompted that? What what caused you to go from whatever you were doing before to a citizen historian? Yeah, well, I was doing a lot of things before. I worked at the Pentagon for the Defense Intelligence Agency at one time. I've worked at the law school at Ohio State. I've taught water aerobics. <laughs> it was kind of a joke. Awesome. Things. <laughs> a Renaissance woman. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so um, uh, after our, we have three sons, and after they were grown and they moved out, it gave me more time to go back to the history books and um uh, I had written some other books, um, six children's books, and then two books about police canines. And then I started writing uh, more nonfiction. Um, as more, the more I researched my father's story, there was more and more to write about, not just his story, but other people's stories as well. Um, and I always like to go back when I read history books to go back to that place and visit and see what it was like and compare the book to that. So I've done a lot of that. I really think that, that you you do need to get on the ground at where these places where these events took place to really gain right. a full appreciation for right. for what you're studying. So I mm -hmm. mean that's fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. So I want to kind of just get into uh, Marilyn's body of work here. Um, so uh, she has uh, she's written two books. This is quite interesting. Two books about police canine units: hmm. uh, Badge <laughs> on My Collar and Badge on My Collar Two. Um, tell us a little bit about that. How did that come about? Um, I always liked German Shepherds. And I lived in a town where I got to know a police uh, canine officer and asked him to bring his dogs to the um, with his buddies, several dogs, to our son's school at one point. And then he invited me to come to the uh, police dog trials, which if you've never gone to them, they're just fascinating what these dogs can do. And they're very entertaining. Um, and I got to know a lot of the police officers and their dogs. And I just thought one day the stories that they told me were so fascinating. 
And so for the first book, I did uh, domestic U.S. dogs. The second one are international dogs. And I just solicited stories for um, people who really, officers that felt they had really good stories. And I just got a ton of them. And I ended up riding with various police departments. Um, uh, the St. Paul Police Department was always top notch. And they were a lot of fun. They, already, they had a show on TV about them at one time. And um, I just rode around with him and took notes and wrote the stories and got to know the dogs. And um, he was telling Ryan once I was up in St. Paul, score below zero. The only time they didn't let me get out of the car was a SWAT run and I had to stay in the car. And it was at night and it was cold. <laughs> and well, we used to live up there, so I know how cold it gets there. And uh, when the SWAT run, run was complete, um, the officer and the dog came back in and they were both cold. And so I was still sitting in the front. The dog's supposed to be in the back. <laughs> and he came creeping up there to sit on my lap. Great. Oh, oh, and he was called. And so I was hugging him. So, you know, those dogs, they're just big babies. They know when they're working and when they're not. They clearly know the difference. You don't want to mess with them when they're yeah. working. Doing that's the part that's but so amazing. Is oh, they're just big babies. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that's and amazing so about your story is that this dog just came in from a place where it may have had to have like latched onto someone and pulled them down right. and it goes in the car that's and it right. curls up on your lap. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He knew he was off duty at that point and he was ready to warm up just like I was. And uh, I was out in Arizona they took me up on the police helicopter with the big spotlight flying over Mesa. That was really fun um, and do different things. And I, you know, I, had meals with them we'd stop and eat different places and they tell me all their stories so i was really glad i did those books and i whenever i do my books i usually donate partial proceeds to different places whether it's the solid blue three museum or in this case it was the uh, police foundation the u.s police canine association so they made me the first honorary member of the association and they I've got a big plaque and i was very proud about that yeah <laughs> but they were great fun, fun people yeah it was great well, in the book that we're um, that we're going to have you feature today uh, is written as named Rhapsody in Junk. And um, just a little foreshadowing, the person that we're featuring for the Warrior Next Door podcast today uh, is Harold Dunn. Not only did he fly in B-17s early in the war, but he was shot down. He was a POW. And this is uh, why we're really excited to have you as part of our podcast today, because your father had a similar experience. So. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about the background for Rhapsody and Junk? Yeah, Rhapsody and Junk was the name of his B-24. People don't always, you know, you see the nose art and you see all the wonderful creative names. And there was a very popular song at the time, Rhapsody in Blue. And I think that's where they got that name. Um, uh, they had wanted to name it, what was the other name? Um, the Salvo Kid. And I saw that written several places. And when I found his crew, they told me about that. And they said when they were um, practicing out in Utah or somewhere and the crew was together and they were starting to practice and work together, they were going down the runway and my dad was a bombardier and he hit the wrong button and he salvoed all the bombs on the runway. <laughs> <laughs> so after that, they called him the salvo kid. Um, he never told us later in life. I never heard that story. Um, so then... They took it back over. They were in a plane called Miss Pat. You know, they always gave them the big, shiny new ones uh, to take over. And immediately when they got to England, they had to give that plane up and they give them a bad plane or they fly in different older planes. But the more experienced pilots got the new planes that were ferried over. 
though they ended up with a plane called Rhapsody and Junk that had far too many engine hours on it. And that's the one they went down in on their third mission. Uh, they'd gone to France twice, farming um, the uh, rocket factory on the rocket coast. And so they went down on their third mission and um, they, uh, I don't know how many details you want. They were flying a lot went down that day and other units, big bomber streams. And they flew over Hamburg. And at that time in the war in 44, if you didn't want to be over Hamburg, <laughs> mm. it was a bad place. And many pilots that when the planes went down were actually hanged on the ground by the irate civilians and wow. from Lampos. And so they got um, they took flak, um, and it went, the engines were bad anyway, and one engine went out, another engine went out, they had to pull out of formation, and the pilot started to go to Sweden, see if he could get to Sweden, and they unfortunately flew over Kiel, which is where the subpens were heavily defended by thousands of guns, and they would have smoke pots on the ground, so the smoke you couldn't, you know, see where you're going, and that's when they were only down to one engine, and the Pilot said, we can't fly any further on one engine. And they got across almost to the Danish border. They were still in Germany and went down in a little farm community called Blick. And that's where I went back to. And we can go into that later where I found pieces yeah. of this plane. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, so um, that's fantastic. And that's a good uh, segue into, um, you know, the reason that's one of the reasons why we've got Marilyn here today. Um, you know, Harold Dunn was shot down. And he right. was in Stalaglov 3. And so who better to have on our show as a subject matter expert than Marilyn? So um, a few other things I wanted to touch on on your resume. Um, you know, she's been involved in, uh, you know, the, the big screen, too, or, you know, with documentaries. Uh, she's been involved with The Lost Airmen of Buchenwald, a 2012 winner of the Best Feature Documentary at the GI Film Festival. Nice. She um, uh, put together work, was a researcher on an excellent um uh, movie or documentary called Finding Sconiers, first place winner for the outstanding documentary at the World War II Foundation D-Day Film Festival in Normandy. That was in 2019. And she is currently working with Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg on Masters of the Air as a production assistant. And I think you also said, are you a script writer also? I worked with, I was a script consultant and on the crew. I'm My considered goodness. on the crew. <laughs> so have, yeah. you got, have you gotten to meet Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg? I have not, and I might never. I work with the producers and the directors and the scriptwriters um, and the people that build the sets and that thing. It was filmed in the UK, so a lot of it, um, due to COVID, really complicated things for them, of course, too. They got delayed, but uh, when they went to build the set of Stalin Glue 3, um, that's where I came in, and also the director of the museum there, Merrick Lazars, who is a good friend of mine, and he runs the museum over there. And between the two of us, um, ironically, when that happened, uh, you know, they want to be, they, these are the same people that I work with that did uh, the John Adams uh, miniseries, yeah, if, wow. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. And when yeah. they did that, they made it a point. Of course, this, I should back up here. Masters is, is of the Air is the third part of the trilogy, Band of Brothers. Started with Band of Brothers, then they did the Pacific, and now they're going to do the Air War in Europe, yeah. uh, which will be called Masters of the Air from a book by Don Miller. And I, I've met Don Miller. Um, and there's it's a fantastic story from start to finish. There's a lot of stories interwoven. But for the POWs, they needed to build the set. And just like John Adams, they like to be accurate about everything. 
they went to Williamsburg to do that to see, you know, what kind of pen would be on the table, what kind of all the decoration in the rooms and all. So what you see in that is extremely accurate. And that'll be the same for Masters of the Air. So if you can get some interesting questions about what people wore, what kind of cars were they, you know, were the potatoes pulled on a wagon? Was it a horse, a car? You know, so <laughs> what you see will be very accurate. And when they built the set, they I was astonished how well it turned out because the descriptions for it came from, I probably have on my bookcase here, probably 100 memoirs of Stalago through POWs, and I've read them all. And there's online stories. So I was immersed in all that. And um, I was able to tell them what the actual POW said they saw right down to the finest details. And the, the lucky break that came our way is that my friend Merrick Lazar in the museum there at the old camp um, had a German friend. And there was an auction of the architect's house who built that camp. And nobody knew what the, the blueprints were that they were seeing. So they threw them in the trash. Nobody wanted those. And his friend pulled them out. We have the full blueprints of the whole camp. So oh, that made it even more accurate as the movie people did it because they could refer. We sent those on and they could refer to the plans. We'd never seen the front gate of the camp. We'd heard about it and POWs talk about it when they were marched down the road into the camp. We'd never seen it. And now we have the, the diagram that shows and where it was, what it looked like. So we were able to tell them. And so what you're seeing, if my dad would have gone back to this, what their set that they built, I think he would really be deja vu. He would really think he was in the camp, right down the barbed wire, everything, everything. So so, so when will this be re- released? When will people be able to watch this? Oh, hopefully by the end of next year. It's, uh, <laughs> everybody asks that question. It depends if they have to refilm parts of it. It's pretty much in the can, as they say, but, um, and it's going to be uh, on Apple it probably, TV, you know, it, yes, it'll only be on Apple TV. Yeah. yeah. Apple TV and a little documentary afterwards. They're going to prepare right now to uh, and talk about the filming of it and that kind of thing. And the bomb group was the hundredth. It's about the hundredth bomb. Group. So it so should be very is, interesting. Is any of your book being used in, in the series? The big one is this one. Actually, I don't know if you've seen this one, this one we call, the door stop because it weighs four pounds. <laughs> if you can see it. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, so she's it's very heavy. She's holding up a book. It's called "From Interrogation to Liberation." Liberation. Um, yeah. A photographic journey of Stalag of Three: Road to Freedom. Oh. Yeah, and it's uh, they call it the encyclopedia, <laughs> and the directors and producers uh, have mentioned they've read it and they're using it for a guide because there's so many stories in the book that they can use. So I was really happy. My co-author Mike Eberhardt. And I walked and worked on this book. And again, we took money from it. We didn't take any money from the book. It all went to the museum and several other uh, books we did for the museum as fundraisers. We sold them as fundraisers because the museum, Estella Glue 3, is, was started out by the communists when the communists were there. And there wasn't much to it. And the new director, Merrick Lazars, has just turned it around. And we've helped him to build a research center there and an actual uh, recreation of uh, one of the rooms there with the bunk beds and all that so it's just, so what we learned today is Marilyn really knows what she's talking about i mean <laughs> you know she's she's written some books on this she's traveled overseas she's currently working on uh, a really high dollar film with uh, hanks and spielberg and even though you haven't had a chance to meet them yet Marilyn, i mean 
you know, your, your work, your knowledge, some of the things that you've contributing are going to make it into the film. Like with that, I think that's really exciting yeah. really cool that we have you here to help us uh, unpack this. Yeah. And Art Durand, who's the friend who passed away, wrote the original book, A Secret Story of Style of Blue 3. And he used to be on documentaries and he was a good friend of mine. And I think he inspired me greatly, too. And he passed away far too early. And uh, I found his family and they've actually gone back to the camp and we've named the research center after him. So that's in public. Yeah. And the point I should make, and I, I told the Hank Spielberg people, people this early on because it's a mistake that's in so many books and I've seen it on documentaries and even occasionally prisoners of war get this wrong only because they've heard it wrong so many times and they were actually there. But the camp itself, when um, Harold became a prisoner of war, he was at the camp in Germany. And it wasn't until after the war that in war reparations, that part of Germany where the camp was, was given to Poland in war reparations. So now it's in Poland. It used to be Sagan, Germany, S-A-G-A-N. Now it's Zagen with a Z, Zagen, Poland. And um, people have made that mistake in documentaries and whatever. And they say they were they went to the camp in Poland, but it wasn't Poland then. So they've sworn to me, the, the directors and producers, they're going to get that right. <laughs> they're going to help turn that around. And they're going to say it was not in Poland, it was in Germany. Yeah. So what so, I always thought was that uh, after the war, the, that portion of Poland that was invaded by Germany was just given back to Poland uh, and the borders reestablished. So mm -hmm. I'm glad that you corrected the record on that. Yeah, it's, you know, it's the whole borders of Poland over the years, it's, they have a very complicated history of their borders. And uh, yes, Germany did come in in Poland and a lot of the concentration camps that were in Poland. I mean, or in, they, that was actually Germany and, and somewhere. It, it's very confusing. <laughs> so but we want to make sure for that part um, of uh, where the camp is now that it was identified correctly and, and certainly in the war that it was Germany at that time. So for all of you out there listening and you're thinking, Stalag Lift 3, that sounds familiar to me. Well, it should sound familiar to you. That's where the infamous Great Escape took place. Yes. Where uh, approximately 76 Allied prisoners were able to tunnel out of Stalag Lift 3 yeah. and escape across the countryside. And it was 76 prisoners. Isn't that correct, Marilyn? 76 is correct. Technically, some people in the British say 80 because there were a couple of guys that got out and were right going out the tunnel when the tunnel broke or when the Germans, the whistles were blowing and when they were discovered. So there were four, but they, they went back in real quick and tried to get out to go the other way, but it didn't work real well. <laughs> um, yeah, 76. So The Great Escape, the movie came out in 1962 and uh, de really details this great whole movie. saga and, and the project that really became The Great Escape. Uh, and it really has an all-star cast. Yeah. You've got Steve McQueen, yeah. James Garner, Donald Pleasance, Charles Bronson, among others. It was really an, a, a truly uh, uh, all-star cast and everything. Pleasance, uh, Donald Pleasant actually was a prisoner of war in World War II, but not at Stalag Lose III. So if you look him up sometime, he, he has a prisoner of war history. And when they filmed it, um, it was filmed down around Munich, outside Munich somewhere, and they um, got most of the story pretty accurate. Uh, some of the characters are like compilations and blends of several actual men that are fairly well-known prisoners of war from that camp. Steve McQueen, never, there was nobody that ever rode the motorcycle. There was a lot of contention about that at the <laughs> yeah, he, 
Yes, he, that never happened. Um, and the other thing that the British are upset about that movie, they like it and they watch it every Christmas in England. For some reason, that's a tradition at Christmas. You watch it in England. Um, and, of course, it's all about, you know, the, the British that went out through the tunnel. And the movie implies that Americans went out, which they did not. And But they did help. What we like to say about the movie is, uh, including General Clark later, and one of the two little raiders who was a prisoner, they helped dig the tunnel. And Clark did security on the tunnel. Um, and Lieutenant Sconyers, who we'll talk about later, he was security on the tunnel. So we did have Americans that contributed. But in September of 43, when the Commandant von Lindiner realized they knew there were being tunnels being dug. And they'd get, you know, just a feeling about it. And they could see what was going on in the camp. They didn't want any Americans going out. So they put them in South Compound, where my father was. And that's where Harold was also. He got moved to South. So if he ever thought about going out through the tunnel, he didn't have a choice. All the Americans were in a different compound by that time. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I tell you what. Why don't we go ahead and start jumping into the clips with Harold? Um, I think sure. that we've got, I mean, as we get into the camp part of it, we're going to be able to geek out for quite a while on this <laughs> stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um Okay, well, um, again, we're so happy we have Marilyn here today and everything. Um, what we'll start off with here is um, the first clip is going to be all about Harold describing what it was like pre-war for him growing up. Well, like I said, it, <clears throat> at that time, we'd moved to a place where I couldn't work, get any work or anything. I'd been working at Kroger's off and on for quite a while as a kid. So I tracked the first winter, and uh, we lived out halfway between Dexter and Essex, Missouri. So uh, had a big drainage ditch, split the farm in half. I'd get up, uh, pick, run my traps early in the morning, and then catch the school bus. That you know took care of the stock. Ride the school bus to school, and that evening come in, I'd go back and set my traps out for the next night. <clears throat> and uh, I made pretty fair money trapping. Then when Dad moved into town, and nothing to do, <laughs> we built we built a house in the barn, and then after that I did I was footloose and no money. So I joined the National Guard that was at Dexter. Uh, I was 17, but uh, you know, that age you can stretch your age a little bit sometimes. And they didn't find it till I was in the Air Force Cadets. <laughs> and they said, called me and said, hey, says, uh, you say you're so-and-so in your record. We got here says you're, you're younger than that. I said, yeah, I lied to him. He says, you can't say that. <laughs> says the uh, recruiting officer misunderstood you. <laughs> and that's the way it went. <laughs> wasn't the only one who lied. The youngest one I found was 14, and he was, had gone oh, on a couple of bombing rounds. He was, a, he was a, uh, a gunner, and he was big for his age, and somebody tracked him down, and he was only 14, and they sent him back. <laughs> well, what's amazing to me is this is before World War II started, and he lied to get in. You know, yeah. and that's, that's something usually you hear about people lying to get in is because the war's mm. going on, and they want to do their part. This is before the war. This is 1940, I think, you know, but yeah. World War II had started, you know, overseas. Yeah. 
And um, the other thing, I, I thought it was very Putin-esque when, when he was told, you didn't lie about your age, they just misunderstood you. <laughs> At the recruiting office, I was like, That's okay, right. well, <laughs> that works. <laughs> and another thing that we always marvel at, Marilyn, when we ask these vets uh, what they were doing prior to the war, it's almost all rural. I mean, the country was so different back then. It was much more rural than uh, than it is today. And think about the contrast between the things that he was doing when he was a young man. And we think about the things that Ryan and myself and the things that we would have been doing. Yeah. He's out there trapping and doing farm stuff. I wonder what he was trapping. I don't know. Beaver. So what did your father and could you talk a little bit about what your father was doing before the war? Was he also living in an urban or a rural area? Yeah, he, no, he lived in New York and he um, graduated and he'd started a little bit of college and um, he became a machinist. He worked in a machine shop and a friend of him, his was also a machinist uh, who actually was my godfather later on. And um, he had gone to Wright Pat Air Force Base in Dayton and he worked as a machinist there. And he called my dad and he said, you know, it's good money here and you can come here. So my dad went to Dayton where he eventually met my mother. And I remember I asked him what on Pearl Harbor Day, what he was doing. And he and his friend had, were in a theater in New York and they stopped and made the announcement. And right from there, all the younger men in the theater said they went to they were going to go join up. And they did. Um, and so I think there's a, a mix. There were a lot of the rural ones that you talk about actually had some flight experience. They learned to fly uh, on the farm. Or, uh, I've seen that quite frequently. So they became pilots later on. Uh, the ones in New York, um, they had to go all through the training and train out west in several different states and then decide what position they'd be on the plane. Uh, and um, my dad became a bombardier. And um, best seat in the house when you're on the plane <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> until the Falco Wilson, the ME-109s come through the bomber yeah. stream right yeah. out the planes. Yeah. Then yeah. it's not so good. But he had quite a view. Yeah. So, But he decided to join up. Uh, and, and you're right about that. We're right now, as we're recording this with you, our, we have a series that is active on our podcast from Gerald Gentis. And he was uh, someone who got his pilot's license before the war. And he was also yeah. somebody that was lived in a more rural setting, like you said. Yeah, he got his pilot's well, license before he had his driver's license. <laughs> I've heard of others, the same thing. Yeah. And I've heard of pilots that flew that didn't have a driver's license and they got back to the U.S. after the war and they didn't know how to drive a car. So it works, it works both ways. Uh, Tuskegee Airman Alex Jefferson uh, wanted to join up. He was in college for a while. And when he finally got called up, he was fairly small. He's a good friend. My main name was Jeffers. And so every old record I see of my father, it's got his name, Jeffers, and Alex Jefferson's right behind him, you know, and they were both in solid luxury. And um, I remember he was so thin. He went to take the test and he passed it, but he said, you're, they're, you're half a pound too light. You have to weigh half a pound more than you do. So he ran downstairs and he ate a whole bunch of bananas. And he drank a bunch of water and he went up and he was the right weight and they took him in. <laughs> he was very anxious to get into the war. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Well, I tell you what, so we're going to move on to the next clip now. Um, at, at this point, uh, remember, uh, Harold is not in the Army Air Corps at this time. He's in right. the National Guard and it's, and it's pre-war. And so mm -hmm. he's going to talk a little bit now about his training. But I, I had my first one was a Browning automatic rifle, and I did real good with that. And uh, that, that's what got me started out 
when they made a check on it, I ranked real high. And then they sent me down to division headquarters to uh, give a demonstration with that Browning automatic rifle. And next week, I was, I was a corporal. Okay. <laughs> the next year, I was a sergeant. I was a corporal over rifle squad for a year. Then I sergeant then over the weapons platoon. At that time, I had uh, two machine guns and four mortars as a weapons platoon. Well, for some crazy reason, I woke up one night, I was a sergeant in infantry then at Little Rock, and <clears throat> I got up and I said, I want to go out to the airport. I went out there and there's an old biplane sitting out there that looked a whole lot like that old World War I one. I think it's a 26 model or 29, something like that. And I saw the pilot and he took me up for a ride. And <clears throat> while we were riding around, we come in to land and people would just run around like ants everywhere. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I called out, I was a sergeant then in uniform. I crawled, crawled out of the airplane. <clears throat> Taxi kept raising up there. Said, the chapter bomb Pearl Harbor. So what timing, you know, for this guy, you know, he goes up in a biplane ride and he comes down and he's in uniform and he describes in his manuscript that he's written that when he came down and landed, since he was in uniform, he was immediately whisked away in a car. A car had been sent for him and uh, the, a cab, you know, picked him up, took him back to base. The cab driver would not accept money because mm -hmm. they all knew what this meant. Well, another yeah, thing I thought was... Another thing I thought was interesting is he starts off in infantry and he kind of has a rocket strapped to his back. I mean, yeah. he's, he's making it through the infantry very quickly, uh, all the way mm -hmm. up into to a sergeant pre-war. And so um, I, I think that's another thing that I, I think is fascinating when we interview these veterans who fought in the air war about how they got there. It, some of them would enlist in the U.S. Army Air, Air Force and Air Corps and, and do that. But a lot of them, you know, transferred into it and they initially had very different uh, uh, types of training before they did. Is that something that you've experienced as well with some of these uh, these crews? Um, yeah, it went very quickly. In fact, as the war went on, the training um, sometimes wasn't as complete as it should have been. And it's the staggering statistics, how many pilots training to go over crashed and died. And on the other end, by the time they got there, just spiraling up to get into formation, there's a staggering number of people after all that training. You know, they were wingtip to wingtip and it was very difficult. It took two hours to get into formation and they didn't all make it. They crashed and died. They never flew one mission. So those are the statistics you never really hear about too much. But the training, you know, it was, I know when Jefferson was training, uh, he was flying low-level uh, training up in Michigan. I, it was kind of funny. He said how they would fly real low over farm fields, and they'd scare all the chickens, and they'd, get, and they'd fly through clotheslines, and they'd land the plane, and the clothesline would be wrapped around the tail of the plane, and they flew under the bridge that leads to Canada, and they they were real daredevils, and they and they had a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> they weren't the only ones. Yeah. Well, I think back whenever I was 18 years old, uh, I did a lot of stupid things. And yeah. If you put me in an airplane cockpit at 18, I wouldn't have survived. <laughs> yeah. well, well, and that's something else that you know Ryan and I have talked about in other previous podcasts, and I'd like to get your opinion on that, Marilyn. Mm -hmm. Is you know um, 
air travel prior to World War II was was fairly limited. It, there was just a yeah. handful of companies that would fly the rich and famous to various destinations. So. Um, yeah. The other part of this that I think is really fascinating is is the contrast in technology between what these men were exposed to during the war versus you know what they would have what they would have seen day to day during the Great Depression. There was this huge change in 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 the sort of technologies that they would have what they had. Did Marilyn? Did your dad ever talk about about that as well? A lot of them had never flown before. This was all new to them, except like the farm boys. Like I said, they they had flown some, but. Most didn't. And then you had the German dirigibles. You could see those, but, you know, we weren't on those. Um, so they didn't have a lot of flight experience. They uh, actually, from the ground up, they had to learn everything. And um, some of them washed out. Some of them made it. And it was very intense training uh, for all of them, whether you're a bombardier, a navigator, whatever. But it was certainly, it was a change of lifestyle for sure. For all of them, no matter where they came from, it's quite different. You know, it's interesting you mentioned you mentioned that um, how dangerous it was as they were spiraling up, you know, to get yeah. information to fly. Um, in the yes. Jerry Gentis series that's playing right now, Jerry was a member, you know, the crew he trained with, he got asked to sit out on a mission so that another guy mm-hmm. could go in his place and get his 30th mission. Well, what happened was uh, they, uh, they crashed in midair Um uh, an hour after takeoff, doing that very thing that you're talking about, I'm sure. Yeah, and, that was not uncommon. And they were all lost, and Jerry was racked with guilt the rest of his life because that should have been him in that seat. Yeah, so. yeah, that happened a lot. It's Tuesday. My dad lost most of his roommates the day before he was shot down because of last-minute change. Um, My goodness. There's a story about that. So that's that's not unusual. And, of course, when they spiraled up, the whole emphasis was on keeping a really tight formation. And these planes were not easy to fly at all. And in wind and whatever, they were always bouncing around. And um, and I think that contributed to it a lot, trying to keep it tight because if the formation wasn't tight, they knew the Germans attacked from the front and from the sun. They came in those directions. They would fly right through the front of the bomber stream. So if these planes got spread out, it was a lot easier for them to get through. And so... They were, that was drilled into them to keep a tight formation. So when you're trying to battle all that in a hard, you know, it's hard to fly the plane anyway. One or more weren't lost, really. So in the book, you talk about a plane that had polka dots on it. Was that the one that got the planes into formation? Could you talk about that briefly? Yeah. Those were called the assembly planes. And when a plane got too many engine hours on it, it wasn't good for combat anymore, but it was good enough to fly up. And so it, it was painted all different colors, polka dots. Different ones. Rhapsody and Junk should have been an assembly plane, but it went on. <laughs> Maybe the next mission. <laughs> yeah. And so they could see coming up through the clouds, they would watch for the assembly plane. So they knew where their place was in the elements, the elements, where they were stacked up to be. And it, there was nothing easy about it. But yeah, all, all the bases, there were 100, um, my idea was at station 123, all the stations around Norwich, they all had assembly planes. All right, well, let's move on. We'll, let's move on to the next clip. Um, as you, you know, just remember, he's still in National Guard at this point, and he's going to talk about, uh, you know, after Pearl Harbor, what his route was at that time and where he ended up. He went all over the place, and there's a pretty interesting little historical note that, um, that, that, that he's going to kind of bring up, and then um, we'll try to elaborate on that. Then we loaded up. It took us a week to go from um, Little Rock, to uh, to California, 
we pulled in Fort Ord. I think we stayed there about three days and went up to uh, San Francisco to the Cow Palace. And then uh, a platoon sergeant, they sent my platoon to Fresno. And I had three roadblocks in that Japanese farming community there at Fresno. And uh, I won't tell another story there, but because something happened, I don't think it's ever been put out. Well, we'll we'll tell the story because we looked it up on something called the interwebs, and <clears throat> what he saw in Fresno uh, at a place called the Cow Palace was one of the early assembly areas for Japanese Americans that were going to internment camps, which has been widely mm-hmm. described as the uh, greatest single violation of uh, civil liberties and human rights in United States history outside of slavery. And so for those who may not know, after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, um, there was a, um, a, a, a push to make sure that these Japanese Americans, who at the time were seen as not being particularly reliable, um, and, and something that we've learned through the hindsight of history, to not be true at all. They, they fought alongside um, non-Japanese soldiers with distinction during the war. But at this time, you had the xenophobia, you had uh, a lot of people that weren't thinking critically because of the shock of the attack in the Pearl Harbor. And so the thing that he didn't want to talk about was seeing what amounts to tens of thousands of families in the Fresno area being mm-hmm. put into this into this assembly area about to go to the two or three camps that existed in the United States to hold these Japanese interns. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And like you say, despite that, they... They had the Japanese units. They were in Europe. The, everybody else saw them, and uh, they they did serve with distinction. And as did the, the Navajo, excuse me, Navajo uh, code talkers. Mm-hmm. That was the only code that couldn't be broken by the Germans. Was the Indian code, um, and they served with distinction as well. Well, and you mentioned the Tuskegee Airmen earlier. Uh, Ryan and I had a chance to get to know some of the Tuskegee mm-hmm. Airmen from. Uh, running the autograph tent in Houston. I sat next to Lee Archer during a a, 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 a luncheon, a dinner that we were having. And I asked him, I was like, hey, you know, I've read and I've heard all of these horrible accounts of how you were treated when pre-war, how the army was segregated, how your path to, to just want to do your job was impeded every step of the way by a very racist, segregated America. I said, what, what made you decide to just to stick with it, to, to even do it. And his response is awesome. He felt like that the best way to show these people how wrong they were was to perform as good or better than anyone who came before yeah, us. Yeah, they had a high bar for them, for <clears throat> sure. They did. Yeah, that's what they all said. The ones I knew said the same thing. They caught the, the, the double V campaign, uh, problems with their behavior, how they were treated in this country, and also fighting the war at the same time. And they managed to do both. And uh, Alex has a book out that's really interesting that talks about all that, what they went through. It's really good. You know, we, we actually met Alex. We hosted him at the tent, at the Legends and Heroes tent. We, so Tony and oh. I both ran the Legends and Heroes tent for a few years in the early 2000s right. at, at yeah. the show down there. And we got to bring in all sorts. Of, we brought the Tuskegee Airmen guys in. Um, and it was a great experience. So awesome. So basically we just wanted to pull that clip to let the the audience know that this was a different America. Um, we still have issues with racism to this day. 
but I, I, I am happy to report that at least the United States has moved away from these internment camps, which mm-hmm. were a consequence mm-hmm. of the war with Japan. And that was a thing that he saw that really shocked him. So what was what what it, it makes me think is, you know, obviously everyone understood what consequences there were and, and how egregious this was. But they must have felt that the threat was so existential to the country that they had to do this. Um, but it, I mean, but it was, um, you know, in hindsight, you know, probably not necessary oh, at all to do. Necessary you know? at all. And, and yeah. uh, um, mm-hmm. it was just fear gripping everyone. Well, look at 9 11. I mean, fear. we saw yeah. what happened in, uh, in the, you know, the, the uh, Middle Eastern communities in the United States. <clears throat> um, and it was, I mean, that's what happens when these really shocking events uh, occur is that people start using different parts of their brain and making decisions that years later they, they, they can regret. And this just happened to be one of those. In retrospect, everything looks different. Yes. It's easy to look back and, and be a Monday morning quarterback on all this stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of our American pilots that were shot down or crews they were surprised at a lot of the kind Germans that were very, whether it was civilians or sometimes military. And a lot of them, I've read a lot of stories when they were shot down, uh, the plane that shot them down or they since brought them down, they were really worried because sometimes there was shooting of men in the parachutes and it happened on both sides. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, they'd be coming down, they'd see that fighter plane coming around towards them again, convinced he was going to shoot. And a lot of times he just wanted to wave. Or he'd take a picture. And part of the reason he took a picture was when he got back down on the ground, all the German pilots would have a debate who would get credit for the kill of getting that plane shot down. And they get a picture. And, for instance, General Clark had red hair. And so they wanted to make sure that, you know, somebody said, no, who was that pilot? He was red- redheaded. And they very conscious. And then they'd take him out to dinner. They'd wine and dine him. And they'd all have a great time together. And I, it's strange. I mean, people don't. Realized, as particularly pilots, uh, that there's a camaraderie among them, even the enemy pilots. Sure. And many kept uh, in touch after the war with the person who shot them down. Um, and uh, in a recent case, I read of a, uh, a man who was shot down. He was an American and gave his uh, wings to a German pilot. And when the German pilot died, he, he sent his wings back to the family. So... There's uh, even relationships are being formed. You never hear that, you know. <laughs> yeah, my goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some great stories. If you'd like to order Marilyn's book, Rhapsody in Junk, A Daughter's Return to Germany to Finish Her Father's Story, please take advantage of this special offer that she's offering for our listeners only. For $23, which includes shipping and handling, you'll get an autographed copy of her book directly from Marilyn Walton. To place your order, please email waltonk9 at gmail.com. That's W-A-L-T-O-N, the letter K, the number nine, at gmail.com. This is the end of episode one of the five-part Harold Dunn series on the Warrior Next Door podcast. Please join us next time for episode two where Mr. Dunn documents his transition from the Army into the United States Army Air Corps and his training as a B-17 pilot.